So Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Last week we were looking at the end of chapter 5 and uh, again picking up what we've seen as we've gone through that chapter that Paul speaks of these two key men in all human history, Adam and Jesus Christ. And he's making the point that everyone on planet Earth belongs to one of those two men. I, and, it, and not just belongs to, but it's as if they are in them. They're either in Adam or they are in Christ. And we've seen that each of those men, by their actions, have determined the destiny of those who belong to them. Those who are in Adam, uh, they are condemned, they're sinners, they will die. Those who are in Christ are justified, they are righteous, and they will live. And uh, preaching here uh, in this building, um, I, I used the fact of two balconies, and I said some are un in Adam, and they're under that, under condemnation, and they are sinners on this side, in Christ, justified and righteous. And some have since commented, well, how is it that the ceiling fell on the righteous? <laughs> well, this is a problem that the Bible does address more than once. Why do the wicked prosper? That is the question. Why do the godly suffer? Anyway, no one was injured, um, and uh, some are brave enough to still sit very close to that ceiling. I sat right down here. So there are two key men and two divisions amongst humanity, those who are in Adam, those who are in Christ. And now Paul moves on, but still developing the whole theme. He didn't kind of think, right, I've finished chapter 5, I think I'll now write another chapter. The chapter divisions weren't there. They've been put in afterwards, and so as far as Paul is concerned, what he is saying continues. And really he's looking at the same thing, but from a slightly different angle. Life-changing truth needs to be repeated again and again, needs to be approached from different sides until eventually light dawns and faith can take hold of truth. It's one thing to be able to actually state the truth, to know what it is, to be able to set it out, but it's quite another thing to believe it and be living in it. And Paul is passionate about this, this is the good news that he wants to share, and he is anxious that people get into it. So he comes at it again from another angle, but he raises a question in verse 1 of chapter 6. And he raises this question, the question arises out of, as it were, a problem in what he has just said. Because what is said in verse 19 of 
chapter 5 is that through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And what we've seen is declared righteous regardless of our behavior. It's a declaration. It's being taken out of one camp and put in another before we have done anything. It is by faith, it is by receiving salvation, declared righteous regardless of our behavior. It gives rise to thought, so our behavior doesn't matter then. And then he's gone on to say, verse uh, 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. As sin increased, particularly in nailing the Son of God to a cross, there grace more than increased in salvation. Gives rise to the thought, increased sin leads to increased grace. So if we sin as much as we're able to, then even more grace will flow. So there are the issues. Does it matter how we behave? And is it actually, in some perverse way, doing God a favor to sin as much as possible because he can be as gracious as possible and he's glorified through being gracious? Twisted thinking, but people can be twisted. And so Paul addresses that question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Or... Better translation, shall we remain in sin? The emphasis is on the remaining rather than the sinning. Do we have to change? That's the question. Can we just stay as we are because God is gracious? It doesn't really matter how we behave. Now, any right preaching of grace will give rise to that kind of question. And people are so nervous of that, preachers, church leaders are so nervous of of that, that they kind of hedge it all around with all kinds of conditions and qualifications. No, Paul preaches it. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. We are declared righteous simply by Jesus' obedience, not through our own. He is stating it like that, but then it can give rise to this question. So it doesn't really matter. God loves me anyway. Who cares? Let's remain. In sin, grace will increase, nothing matters. Well, in a way, that is true, but it is certainly not a right reaction. In fact, it's a legalistic understanding of grace. It's receiving grace while still thinking like a legalist, and how a legalist thinks is, what can I get away with? Where are the loopholes? How can I use this to my advantage? And it's a legalistic way of understanding grace. Grace is very often misunderstood, and it's often misunderstood, it's often assumed to mean, I'm okay with God because of his grace, and so really it doesn't matter how I live. And certainly no one should correct me, no one should rebuke me, no one should exhort me to do anything because I'm in grace. I am okay. Thank you very much. Keep your opinions to yourself. That's often how people kind of understand grace. And they then say that any kind of exhortation is legalism. And they're very quick to spot legalism. So, I have said that on Friday evening, the church gathered to pray for Rory. And we prayed and prayed through the evening for Rory. And then I've said, let's keep at it. So, I'm in fact saying... Let's be at the prayer meeting on Friday. We're going to keep praying. Some say legalism. 
Because people understand any kind of encouragement or exhortation to do anything as legalism. Uh, Because grace means leave me alone. I'm okay. No one is going to correct me. No one is going to ask me to do anything. No one is going to rebuke me. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hey, I'm fine. Leave me alone. If that were true, why was most of the New Testament written? (laughs) Which is full of instruction. Full of do this, don't do that, stop that. The apostle of grace, the apostle Paul, has some pretty strong things to say. Has he misunderstood grace? Is he getting into legalism? No, he understands grace. He understands what it's all about. He hasn't got into this casual thinking of, I'm okay, leave me alone. Grace means my relationship with God is dependent on on what Jesus has done. Legalism says, and when people accuse us of legalism, let's, let's know what we're talking about. Legalism means my relationship with God is entirely dependent on my efforts, And actually, I can't do it, and I'm bound to fail. That's legalism. My relationship with God is entirely dependent on my efforts. If I feel I'm good, then I can be close to God. If I'm bad, I'm far from God. But actually, I'm always bound to fail. Grace says my relationship with God is entirely a free gift from God. It's because Jesus took my sin, and he has now come into my life and changed my heart. So that now I can do what previously I couldn't do. Under that side, condemned. Under that side, justified. Under that side, a sinner. Under that side, righteous. And there, the Spirit of God is in me so that now I'm open to correction. I'm open to instruction because God has changed my whole disposition. That side, I'm a rebel. No one's got the right to tell me anything. God is just trying to cramp my style, making life miserable. This side, I love God. I'm teachable. My heart is soft because of grace. Grace is certainly not, leave me alone to do as I please. We don't just continue where we are, where we were. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul says, by no means. That Denial there in verse 2 is a very strong expression in Greek, and it's very hard to know uh, a relevant translation. The old version said, God forbid, which got the force of it, but it was not the word God isn't there. Uh, One of the uh, paraphrases back in the 1950s said, what a ghastly thought. It kind of is a bit weak. Um, No way. It's not on. Shall we go on sin? Shall we remain where we were in sin so that grace can, can in, increase? Emphatically, no. Why? And he goes on to explain. We died to sin. And he goes on to talk about the fact of being in Christ. And that's what we've seen in chapter 5, either in Adam or in Christ. The two heads of two different races, what they did affects everyone who follows them. Adam sinned, he disobeyed, everyone is born in Adam. There is no neutral position, there's no middle ground between Adam and Christ. People sometimes develop a middle, middle ground, and it's normally, the middle ground consists of 
those who have never heard. That's a category that the the Bible doesn't introduce, and so people have invented it. And there are people who are in Adam, there are people in Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all live. But what about those who have never heard? They're a kind of middle category. No, they are not. Everyone is in Adam. Everyone has sinned. Everyone is in Adam's condemnation until they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If those who have never heard are basically okay, the kindest thing is never to preach the gospel to anyone. Because if you never preach the gospel to them, then they don't have the option of of, of not believing. They're okay. No, there is no middle ground. There is Adam. There is Christ. There is sin. There is righteousness. Who are we with? Who are we joined with? Well, Paul has been saying the gospel takes us out of one situation. It brings us by faith into Christ. And when we're in Christ, things are different. In Adam, we were mastered by sin. That is not to say that we were as bad as it's possible to be, but the fact is we were powerless ultimately to deal with our own sin. If we could have dealt with it, the Son of God would never have needed to come. If we could change ourselves, why the gospel? Well, we can't change ourselves. And in Adam, we were mastered by sin. Therefore, the remedy to Adam must be a remedy to this problem of sin. Now, what, what is the remedy? Well, I suppose one rem- remedy would just to say, well, sin doesn't matter anymore. But God is holy. How can people, sinful people, come before a holy God? If God said sin doesn't matter anymore, then he's become unrighteous. It's not that sin doesn't matter, but that sin isn't master. In in Adam, sin dominates. When we're brought out of Adam into union with Christ, sin is no longer our master. We are now free from what once dominated our lives. Rebellion against God, hostility to God, self-righteousness, pride, all that belongs in Adam. We're out of that. And those things are no longer our master. Now, that's what Paul says here. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then he imagines someone saying, what do you mean we died to sin? When? And he answers the question. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We died to sin. That's who we are. We are people who died to sin. A better translation there would be in in verse 2. We who died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Who are we? We're, We're those who died to sin. And the question then is, when? How? If we died with him and we rose with him, how? Well, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, Paul is writing to Rome. He's never been there. Doesn't know the people there, but he knows he can safely refer to their baptism. How does he know that? Well, as far as the Bible is concerned, being a Christian means being baptized. That's the first thing that happens when you become a Christian. Believe and be baptized. It's not kind of an option as modern Western thinking is, that you believe and maybe you'll get around to baptism. You wait for God to speak to you about baptism or whatever. Or maybe you think, I I, I don't really like getting wet. I, I can't really cope with going underwater. I think I'll put it off. In Adam, we were rebels. When we come out of Adam into Christ, 
We have come out of rebellion. And to show that we're out of rebellion, it's a bit crazy to say, but now I'm not going to be baptized. I'm going to rebel against what God says. No, we're out of rebellion. So we're baptized. And Paul can refer to that. And what is baptism about? Well, it's a union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It is saying what Jesus did 2,000 years ago affects my life. His death to sin was my death to sin. Sin, my sin, was put on Jesus. The sin that brings a penalty, death, and the sin that exerts a power over my life that was put on Jesus. He died. Three days later, he's alive again. His death was my death because I'm in him. His resurrection is my resurrection because I'm in him. The penalty is dealt with. He suffered in my place, which means the power has gone. I am now able to walk differently. We, we live a new life. The, the Greek says we walk in a new life. The way I walk through life now is different because Jesus died for me and I rose with him. That was what my baptism indicated, a dying to sin and a rising to now walk in a new life. Everything changes at that that point. When we are baptized, that's not just a testimony. It's not just saying, I have become a Christian. That is when we're showing, I'm joined to Christ. And from now on, I am walking in newness of life. So to continue in sin, to remain where we were, shall we remain sinning? Nonsense. That's that's what we've come out of. Baptism going through the water, coming out the other side, that's what we've left behind. God has always wanted a holy people. The whole point of our salvation is that we are now free to be holy. In Adam, we couldn't. In Adam, there was rebellion in the depths of our very spirit. Adam disobeyed God. If we're in Adam, then a principle of rebellion is there, hostile to God. Yes, we can be ever so religious, but inside, there's a hostility. And inside, we know we're not holy. We know that our thoughts, our behavior, our attitudes, far from holy. God has always wanted a holy people. What Jesus came to do is the remedy for Adam's sin. It brings us in to the possibility of being holy. Not continuing where we were, but changing. 1 Thessalonians, Paul writing to the Christians there in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, Finally, brothers... We instructed you how to live in order to please God. Notice what it says. We instructed you how to live. People say legalism. No, it's not. He's talking about grace here. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It's God's will, in other words, that you should be holy. You should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable and so on. And so it goes on. God wants a holy people. Not a people who say, I'm in the grace of God, so nothing matters. I'm in the grace of God. God loves me anyway. I can live how I please. If we... If we have come into Christ, 
We want to be holy. And therefore, grace changes our whole attitude. No longer resenting and rebellious. But now, the grace of God makes us profoundly teachable. Where we, we just want to learn. Paul says, I instructed you. Say, yes, I want that instruction. I want to be taught. Yes, I want to be a disciple. That's what Jesus called those who followed him, disciples. And disciples are people who are taught. When, where we, we just want to learn. Paul says, I instructed you. Say, yes, I want that instruction. I want to be taught. Yes, I want to be a disciple. That's what Jesus called those who followed him, disciples. And disciples are people who are taught. We're not saying, leave me alone, I'm in grace. But, oh God, I want to please you. I want to be holy. So let me just throw out a question at this point. Are you holy? Are you holy? It's what God wants. It's what God saved us for. He wanted a holy people, not a people seeing what they could get away with, how much like other people are unsaved, it's safe to be, and still know you're in the grace of God. No, the grace of God changes us right out of one camp into another. That's God's desire. We don't remain where we were. A profound change takes place. Shall we remain in sin so that grace may increase? By no means, no way, he says, emphatically, no, we died to it. How can we live in it any longer? Well, we all know, yes, you can, but it's ridiculous. It's absolute nonsense. It's outrageous for the Lord Jesus Christ to give his life, to rescue us out of one condition, to bring us into glorious possibilities, and we say, thank you, Lord, I'm going to stay living there. That's nonsense. We died to it so that we walk in newness of life. And so Paul then develops this. If we've been united, verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection, a new life. And then he says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He says, we know that. And the question is, do we? Verse 6, I I think preachers always run the risk when they home in on a verse to say, I think this is the most important verse in the entire Bible. If any of you have read any of the wonderful expositions of Paul's letter to the Romans by the late, great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you'll know in every message he says, I sometimes think this is the most important passage in the whole Bible. Then he moves on to the next one, which is now the most important passage in the whole Bible. And so he goes on, because he just loves it. And it is a danger of saying that. But I will take a risk and say, I think verse 6 here is the most crucial message in the entire Bible. Well, it's very important. (laughs) We know, Paul says, we know this, this, and this. Do we know it? That is the question. Do we understand what Paul is saying here? Well, it's not that easy to understand because some of the terms that he uses, our old self, the body of sin, done away with, what do these things mean? What are these things? What's it all about? Well, let's try and unravel it and see what Paul is saying here. But he he insists, we know this. Well, then it's important that we should. 
And it's important that we not only understand it, but we know it in our experience that this is how we're living. This is the explanation for our lives. So what's he saying? He refers to our old self. The old King James Version referred here to our old man. That expression has other meanings, you know, my old man. It's, so that's maybe not the most helpful. What it's talking about is when I was in Adam, how I was when I was born, who I am by birth, the old person that I was. And the old person that I was, well, we've seen all that it meant to be in Adam. That's that person, the person I was by birth, the old self was crucified with him. As we've said that, when Jesus died, we died. Who died with him? The person that I once was. And the person that I once was, was someone who is rebellious against God, who, who could not ultimately conquer sin. Every appetite, every desire was ultimately too strong for me. And I found myself always giving in. It's the kind of thing that Paul speaks about in chapter 7. He says, verse 21, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making a me a prisoner of the law of sin. How I was, who I was in Adam, there was this principle of sin that meant I could make resolutions. I could decide I was never going to do something, such a thing again. But I tripped up again and I couldn't conquer it. The way I've often illustrated it, and it's a dangerous illustration for me personally, because one tends to be preaching around this time. Uh, when one is getting a bit hungry because it's nearly lunchtime. And the illustration is of a cream donut. My mouth is watering. You see, imagine a cream donut with fresh piped cream. The sugar is all glistening on it. There it sits. Fresh, just asking you to sink your teeth into it. There it is. So even thinking about it, my body reacts. My mouth, is, uh, please believe me, my mouth is actually starting to water. So that you react. There it is. Now imagine that you have made a promise you will never eat another cream donut in your life. That's it. That's the vow. So there, you've made a promise. And then you see it. And imagine it's there on a plate in front of you and you're alone in the room. No one to see what's going on. And somehow you cannot avert your eyes from it. And the more you look at it, the more your mouth waters. In Adam, now this is only an illustration, but in Adam, you couldn't resist. There it is. Your, your, your mouth is aching now <laughs> as you look at it. And and you, you take the first, you know, maybe you, in Adam you'd say, just one bite. Or I'll take a bite and then turn it around so no one can see. Anyway, because there's always deception and so on in Adam. One bite. But of course, one bite leads to another. 
and it's gone. That's where we were in Adam. We'd make resolutions, but there's another principle of work, at work in us. Now, eating a cream donut, trivial. What if it's lust? What if it's anger? What if it's self-pity? What if it's a low view of yourself that no one loves me, everyone's again? What if it's all of that stuff and you're always tripped up in it? In Adam, you can't conquer it. And you think, I'm going to deal with that. And then something triggers it again and you give in. Goes all the time. That's where we were. Who I was in Adam. The old me was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away. What's the body of sin? Well, it's talking about our body, and our body is so easily susceptible to sin. And so, when I talk about the cream donut, my body reacts. My body is all that I am apart from my spirit. When I die, this body will be laid to rest. My spirit will go to be with the Lord and be clothed with a new body. My, my body, then, is everything that belongs to physical me. And it's susceptible to sin. And so Paul calls it a body of sin. It's not that it's inherently sinful, but it's certainly susceptible to sin. I, who I was, was crucified with Christ so that this body that is so prone to sin might be, it says here, done away with. Again, a difficult phrase to translate. It means defeated, robbed of its power. Overcome, not rendered extinct, but robbed of its power. We know that who we were was crucified with him so that this body that is so prone to sin might be robbed of its power, Paul says. Paul says, that's what we know. In other words, who I was in Adam, powerless to live right, Making resolutions and failing, that died. I've still got the same body, however. It still reacts in the same way, but it has been robbed of its legal power. It's been, it's, it can now be overcome. I am now legally free to tell my body to stop, once it conquered me, once it mastered me, sin mastered me, now I'm in Christ. I've still got the same body, but I'm not the same. I am a new creation. I'm in Christ. And I've got authority to deny what my body wants to be. And so it says in verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It will if you let it. But don't. Now, in Adam, it was pointless saying that to anyone. They couldn't do anything about it. But now, we're in Christ. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin. Now, it's voluntary. Once it wasn't. Paul says, now we know. I find so many Christians do not know this. And when their body responds, as it were, they think, I haven't changed. Everything's just the same. I'm still reacting in the same way. I thought that was conquered. We need to realize our legal position. Now, if you'll forgive me, I'll use another illustration that I've used so often that probably everyone will say it along with me, but it could just be you haven't heard it before. I doubt it. 
It's the illustration of the headmaster at school. How many of you have heard me say that? Not that many. Some have, yeah. Some just haven't forgotten. <laughs> well, I, I went to school in the old days when the staff were feared. Now it's reversed the other way, of course, and teachers need protection from the students that they fear. But in my day, it was different, and you feared the staff. And most of all, you feared the headmaster because he had a cane in his study. And if a member of staff sent you to the study, you got caned. And when you were sent to the headmaster's office, you queued outside and then went in one by one. And you could hear the thwack uh, as he administered corporal punishment. That was the headmaster. When I left school, went to university, uh, after university... Uh, went back home and uh, uh, met up with an old school friend and we said, let's go back to the school and just see if there's still some members of staff there who remember us. Um, just be good to see them. Now we're adults. Went back to the school, went to the headmaster's secretary's office and uh, she said, well, the headmaster's out in the school somewhere. If you just wait outside his office, he'll be back soon. So there we are, waiting outside the headmaster's office. Kind of familiar. And then we heard his footsteps approaching, very familiar. It was in the days when members of staff wore academic gowns and his gown is billowing out behind. I didn't go to a posh school, I have to say. I grew up in the east end of London. This is just an ordinary school. His, his gown is billowing out behind me, comes into view. And we now are kind of a bit nervous, but we say hello. And he just barked out, pick up those boxes and follow me. And then he strode off. We picked up the boxes and trotted along behind them. And instantly, I despised myself. I thought, I am not a little boy anymore. But the old surroundings, the old sensations, and the familiar voice just gave in straight away. I could have stood my ground and said, no. I could, even if I had not been as nice as I am, I could have been rude and said, pick up your own boxes. I could have poked my tongue out at him, and he couldn't touch me because I was no longer under his authority. I was no longer a member of that school. I've been transferred out of it. I'm now a different person. But the old familiar surroundings and the old familiar sounds made me give in. We know, says Paul, so we have changed. The sensations, the surroundings, the temptations, the stimuli, whatever, they're all the same, but we are not the same, Paul says. We know it. So the temptations are there to react how we always did, to give in where we always did. We don't need, I didn't need to be bigger and stronger than that headmaster. He was taller than me. But that didn't matter. He didn't have any authority. That's the issue. It's not, are we strong enough? Have we got enough willpower to deal with that tendency to anger, that tendency to lust and uncleanness, that, those habits? That, no, it's not, are we stronger? It's authority. And we've got to believe the gospel. Believe that that Jesus has transferred us out of the dominion, the power of sin and Satan 
brought us into his kingdom, the voices are the same, the temptations are the same, but we're different. And now we can say no. It's not mind over matter, power, (laughs) but no, because I'm in Christ. It's the authority of who Jesus is and the kingdom that we're in. Paul says, we know that. We don't remain how we were. It doesn't just go on in all the dismal failure and compromise and all of that stuff. And yet for many Christians it does. No, we have changed. I am legally free now to deny sin's claim on my life, to leave thoughts behind, temptations behind, to leave habits behind, to leave bondage behind to leave inhibitions behind, all that came on me in Adam, I am free to walk away and say no. Just no. Paul says we know that. Do we? Do we? We don't need necessarily hours of pastoral counseling and support. It's believing the truth. You know the truth, and the truth makes you free. We may need help, but let's believe the truth. I've seen people released from the most amazing, tight bondage of bad habits and so on, just when they've understood this. That's who I am in Christ. Yes, that's who you are in Christ. You can say no to it. You've got authority. I had authority to say no to that headmaster. I just forgot it. We forget who we are. We forget, or we don't believe really what Jesus has done. He died to sin so that we walk in newness of life. We're in his death. We're in his resurrection. There's only one gospel, and that's it. Out of one thing into another, and this is the, 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 uh, this, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Now, having come out, having been made free, we've got to learn to live free. Imagine a long-term prisoner served his sentence maybe 10 years or more. The day comes, all the time he's a prisoner, he's dreaming of freedom, dreaming of life outside the walls. But actually, he's been inside the walls for a long time. Maybe, let's say, much of his adult life. But then the day comes when he's released. The doors close behind him. The freedom that he's dreamt about is right in front of him. But actually, many would say in that situation, it's suddenly very scary. Because they've known where they were. They were under authority. They're in a confined space. And now suddenly, life is in front of them. And a prisoner, a long-term prisoner coming out, needs a lot of help to know how to live free. When we come into the grace of God, we need to learn how to live in that grace. Otherwise, we just go back into old habits, which is why the Bible is full of practical teaching. Stop doing that. Put on this new way of living. Don't do that now. You don't have to. If you've been stealing, don't steal anymore. Earn money and give. We need instruction. That is not legalism. That's helping us to live in grace. In legalism, if anyone said that, so who are you to tell me that? In grace, saying, I'm teachable. I want to learn. 
because I want to be holy. Paul writing to Titus, one of his friends, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Well, in verse 11, he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and so on. And then it goes on to say uh, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what's good. That's why we're teachable. Because we're eager to do what is good. The grace of God has brought us into freedom. When before we always failed, now we can win through. God wants a holy people. Are you holy? Well, I'm eager to be. So teach me. Point out things. If you see something wrong in my life, please tell me. I will not think that's legalism. I will thank you. I remember just, I think the last family night, uh, one of you just came up and shared something. And the person who shared it probably has forgotten they ever said it. But was a little thing. He said, I, I feel God wants to say this. That has stayed with me. It was so helpful because I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to be holy. Do you? Do you resent people saying, hey, come on. Why aren't you doing this? We, we'd like you to do that. Do you resent that? Say, legalism. You say, no, it's not. It's encouraging the grace of God in me. It's encouraging change in me. It's, it's helping me to, to grow in God. We can be so quick to pounce at legalism. No, it's coming in to all that God has brought for us. We are wonderfully free from guilt, free to enjoy God, free to live right. That's the grace of God. And a changed heart. We don't resent advice. We don't resent correction. We invite it. I would invite you. This is risky. I would invite you. Feel free to say anything to me where you feel, hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't. Do you think you could be doing that? I want to grow. I want to learn. Do you? We won't remain where we were. Shall we remain in sin because we're in grace? Emphatically, no. Jesus brought us out of that into something wonderfully new. And there, in that wonderful freshness of grace, we thrive and we grow. This gospel is true. If you're believing truth, but you're still subject to the old temptations to which you yield all the time, there's stuff going on in your life, you know, oh, when will I be free of that? Oh, maybe I need some professional counseling or whatever to get... Do you believe the gospel? Do you see who you are in Christ? Do you see what you're free to say no to? This is the gospel. It really is new life. And we are free to walk in newness of life. If you're in Christ, that's you. So come on, let's believe it. Let's pray. Father, I come to you, Lord, 